Well, if you have a Bible and you want to go back to John 8, we're going to be back in John 8 today. Beginning in verse 31. Father, I pray before we start, I just ask you, Lord, you'll come down and meet with us and soften our hearts, Lord, and that you'll clearly speak to our hearts and draw our hearts towards you, Lord, in a more faithful walk with you. She'll do that through your word, and I thank you for it in Jesus' name. All right, John 8, beginning in verse 31, read through verse 36 again, and it says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, or truly my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, Well, we're Abraham's descendants. You've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them, Well, most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Or, there's the word again, truly free. Everybody's searching for freedom these days. We've been on a journey through John 8 here, kind of been on a journey, and it all began back when it started first 11 verses were an encounter between Jesus, the Pharisees, and they drug before him a woman caught in adultery. That encounter was a real-life picture of what we have back in John 3. And if you don't mind, turn it back there briefly. John 3, we'll go right back to John 8, but I want to read this. What we have here in John 3 literally happened in the first 11 verses of this chapter. Beginning in verse 16, which we all know, great verse John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever or whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. That's because all the world begins, all of us born, we're condemned already. All right, so that's why he's saying that. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. It does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But... He who does the truth. Now, we're going to be talking about both things today, the truth and condemnation. But he who does the truth does what? He comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And we can go back to John 8. Basically, what we read there, they hate the light. They want to get away from the light. And I mean the Pharisees, when the light of the Lord Jesus Christ exposed them for who they were, Like I said before, they're like cockroaches. They could not get away from that light fast enough. But the woman stayed in the light. And through that, she was pardoned. She was delivered from condemnation. And more than that, I mean, she was given spiritual life. It wasn't just her past was forgiven. I believe she was born again. Jesus told her, go and sin no more. Well, a sinner can't do that. He literally gave her spiritual life. And I don't know if you all know this. I didn't get into this. But those first 11 verses, they try to make a big case for it should never be there, wasn't meant to be there, da-da-da-da-da. I think it's there. I think God put it there. That's inspired scripture because it paints the picture of what he says next in verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who comes to me shall no longer walk in darkness, 
but shall have the light of life. And that's what happened there. That woman, no longer was she walking in darkness, but she had his light. And in staying there, it brought that healing to her. It also gave her spiritual life. So spiritual life is found in his light. And that promise of John 8, 12, that is a great promise. And that's not only given to that woman, that's given to every one of us today. That he is the light of the world. And if we will follow him, we will not be in darkness. And I'm saying he is the only light. I've said that before. I'm saying it again. But that's the truth. Because of that, because of what he said there in verse 12 and some other things he said, many believed in him. And that's what we have here in verse 30. It says, and as he spoke these words, John 8, 30, it says, many believed in him. And so that many implies he now he's got a crowd following him. And as his custom was... Jesus always wanted to spell out clearly what was going to be involved in following him. You're going to follow the light. Here's what's involved. And so we have a verse we know quite well in Luke 14, 25. And there again, he had the crowd following him. In a sense, I've said this and heard it. He was a terrible evangelist if you're going to go by today's standards. Because most of them today, they try to make it as easy and seeker friendly. And, you know, you're living with somebody. Don't worry about it. Just come. We want you here. And we'll deal with all that later. It's becoming more and more that way. Jesus, that's not his evangelistic approach. He just got through giving the parable of the prodigal son. And he's detracting all these people with the gracious words he's speaking. And when you read Luke 14, 25, it says, now great multitudes went with him. And he turned to them and said to them, he's like, look, I don't want to deceive you. I want you to know up front, this is what we're dealing with. And he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he tells them he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, you know, do you think Jesus was trying to downsize at that point? I don't think he was necessarily, but that's the effect it would have, isn't it? Because there's people decide, wait a minute, you're going to tell me that? Carry a cross every day? Mm -mm, I don't like that message. I'm going to go find another message. Because here's the thing, he doesn't want any of us, any of us. He says in between all that, you got to sit down and count the cost. He doesn't want any of us to get in a situation because we got caught up in the moment. We got caught up in a crowd. And here we are thinking we're following him. And wait a minute, all of a sudden it dawns on us. How did I get where I'm at? Oh, please. I wish I never was here. He says, no, I want you to make that mistake. Count the cost first. It's going to cost you everything to follow me. You've got to hate everything else and see that I am worth leaving everything. He tells them that up front. That's what it means to be a disciple. We talked about this last week in verse 31. He's basically doing the same thing. He wants all who believe in him, all of these believers from verse 30 and all of us to know what it means to be his disciple. And I'm saying this because most people would have known this, but I don't know. You know, we got new people believing. People maybe just decided they wanted to start paying attention after a few years or whatever. But being a disciple is not a special class of, of a Christian. I think all of us know that, but I don't know. A disciple is a Christian. In Acts eleven twenty six, it says, For it was for a whole year that Barnabas and Saul assembled with the church in Antioch and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. All of us in here, if you're a believer, a true believer, you are a disciple and you are a saint. 
a disciple and a saint. There's no special class of believers, are there? There's just different callings, there's different gifts, but we're all disciples. All of us are. That's the way it is. Jesus tells him there in verse 31, he says, I'm going to give you a test or a proof that you're one of my disciples or a Christian or saved. He says, if you abide in my word, if my word is your home, it's where you hang out, if it's the priority of your life that you want to hear, obey, and cherish it, if you'll be like Mary that sits at my feet to hear my word, then he says, you can know you are truly my disciple. You are the real McCoy, the real deal, as they say. You really are a disciple if that's where your heart's at. He's letting us know that. Moving on, he says, when a man or woman is a true disciple, he's saying there are going to be consequences to being a true disciple. They'll know something. And that's what he says here in verse 32. You shall know something. And that word know means to arrive at a knowledge of someone or something through experience. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We've heard this before, but it bears repeating. It's not knowing about God, but it's knowing Him in a real way, like the title of the book, Experiencing God. It's got to be an experience, and this is the way Jesus knew the Father. Look right over here in this same chapter. Look what He says in verses 54 to 55. Jesus answered, they're giving Him a hard way to go. Who do you make yourself out to be? And he answers them in verse 54. He says, well, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. They're claiming they know God, that he's their God. He goes, yet you have not known him. He says, no, you don't know him. He goes, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and what does he do, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. In knowing the Lord, you're going to be just like the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to know him. And he says, you all claim he's your God, but you do not know him. He says, but I know him. And one proof of that is I do his word. I keep his word. I guard his word. That's what it is to be a true disciple. So what is it they're going to know? He tells us there, he says, you shall know, verse 32, the truth. And so obviously he's not talking about the truth in the sense of academic knowledge. Because it's funny, you've seen it. You go to universities and colleges and they'll put that over their library or different places or put it on their seal. You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know, they're implying academic liberty. That kind of knowledge is liberty and freedom. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And he also didn't just mean truth in the sense of an ethical philosophy or way of life. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about truth in that sense. Or he's not just talking about truth in the sense of Bible knowledge, doctrines about Jesus, all of that. No, what he's talking about is that you will experience truth. You continue in my word, you'll experience truth in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying that will give you freedom from sin and all of its effects. Here's what we need to see. Jesus is not talking about and never does the Bible talk about truth detached from his person, detached from him, because he said, I am the way I am, the truth, and I am the life, no man comes to the Father except 
through me. He says he is the truth. John 1.17 says, for the law was given through Moses, but it says grace and truth, they're not separate. It says they came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through him. He is the revelation of God. We know that. The truth of God that has come down to earth. In essence, he's communicating himself when he's communicating his word to us. What I'm trying to say, I've already said it, you can't separate the truth in the words of Jesus with his person. Now, one guy said this, because of truth's intimate connection with Jesus, True disciples must not only hear his words, so it's not just a matter of hearing his words. He said they must in some sort be united with him who is the truth. That is a critical point, exclamation point, okay? Here's what I'm trying to say. Healing, forgiveness, holiness, they are not like products or goods or gifts that are separate from the person of Jesus. And I think we can make it that way at times. They are found in him, in him, in his person. Here's the thing we need to see. We're reading the gospels. We've gone through the gospel. He speaks the word of grace and forgiveness. We just read it to that adulterous woman, didn't he? They bring the man board of four. And what's the first thing he says? Son, thy sins are forgiven thee. It's the word from him. That forgiveness is not separate from him. It's coming from him. If you see what I'm saying, when he spoke the words of healings to the blind men, he didn't say, you know, go get your healing in the temple. What does he say? They came to him wanting healing because they saw healing was in him, in his person. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? You can't take healing away from him. So what it is, is it, this is the faith message. I'm back on this again. Our relationship with Jesus and all the promises and all that, this is not an assembly line. This isn't you put 10 principles into practice and out comes healing apart from the word and a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the living God. Okay, so the principles are fine. I'm not putting that down. Don't hear me saying that. But they're not fine if they're apart from him and your relationship with him. And that's why you may find out, well, they're just not working for me. Because it's in him. It's coming to him. It's having a knowledge of him. And you'll know that when you have it. You won't read through the New Testament. Nothing's happening apart from him, is it? And his word. Salvation begins and ends with a relationship with a living person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to him to be saved. I hope you did. And guess what? We're going to end with him. We're going to go to be with him when we die. So if you don't have that relationship, it isn't going to mean much to you. Whereas person that does, when they die, it's like, I am finally going to be with him. This one I've been walking with, because that's what happens from the beginning. When you establish a relationship with him and you go to be with him, all of this beginning is where we're at now. And that's where we should be walking with him, communing with him. Praying with him, having him speak to us, see him answer prayers, know his presence is in our life daily. And that's what Christianity is, isn't it? It really is. We hear his voice through the living word. And it's only the dead letter. Isn't it funny? I heard somebody say that they went with somebody that was once alive and on fire for the Lord. 
and they said later this brother got away from it all because what he's saying is when you're not right with God, you can't hear God speaking. He said he went to a meeting that was alive. God was speaking through whoever it was. And he said, I was thoroughly blessed. And he said he asked that guy, he said, man, what did you think of that meeting? He's like, well, didn't really do much for me. And that tells you something, doesn't it? You can lose that. When you're not born of God, or you can be just in a backslidden state, you can't hear or understand the word. And that's what was happening here to these people. Look, Jesus said, we'll start in 42. He said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. I haven't come of myself, but he sent me. And look what he says in verse 43. He goes, why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. He says they weren't able to listen to his word. Look down what he goes on to say in verses 46 to 47. He said, which of you convicts me of sin? And he says, if I tell you, here we are again, the truth, he says, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, he says, you do not hear because you are not of God. And I think that's why he tells us Blessed are your ears that can hear. Blessed are your eyes that can see. When you start shutting God down, it starts making your ears duller and duller and duller. And so what should be a blessing ends up just becoming really a source of dullness to your ears. That's just the way it works. That's the way it's designed to work. He tells them here the second consequence of hearing the word of Jesus. He says what in verse 32? He says, you'll know the truth. You'll know the truth. And then the second consequence is, he says... The truth will do what? It'll make you free, set you at liberty, liberate you from bondage, take you out from domination. He's saying that's what it'll do, free you from sin. That's what he goes on to tell them in verse 34. But they didn't understand that. When he tells them, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, all they're hearing at that point is they're, they're like, you are implying Sir, that we're in some sort of bondage. And these people get offended at him. They got offended like right away because look what it says in verse 33. He just said, you'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. And they answered him in verse 33. We're Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. Well, how can you say you will be made free? Why are they offended? I mean, you think about it. This is the second of one of the, probably the greatest promise that the Lord Jesus Christ could make. It really is one of the most gracious promises ever uttered. And why is that? Because for one thing, he is promising them true freedom. The other reason that is the most gracious promise that doesn't deserve to have them getting on his case like they do the whole rest of the chapter. But you think about it, for him to make that statement, you will know the truth, the truth will set you free. Do you know what making that statement cost him to fulfill that promise? Everything. It cost him his death and the agony and the suffering and being forsaken by God on our behalf. And man, they should have been just thrilled to pieces. Instead, they're, they're offended by it. They're hot. So what's the problem? So it's the reason people reject truth. It's not an intellectual problem. It's not a mental problem. Here's the problem is the problem for people rejecting truth is personal pride. They don't want to face the seriousness of their sin, do they? They don't. Psalm 10, 4 says this, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. 
Man, you talk to somebody, if God's spirit's not drawing them to them and whatever, they just get hot, don't they? They don't want to hear it. Uh-uh, I don't want all that religion stuff. That's for you. It's not for me. That's what happens. But here's this even on with us at times, though, isn't it? Because nobody, nobody likes to have their sin pointed out. Nobody does. And that's why we have Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. But he's saying you got to be careful. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness or meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Jesus is just this way, though. They keep getting on him, getting on him, getting on him. He eventually just gets blunt and says, you are of your father, the devil. He doesn't start off that way, though. He's nice to him. It's hard to be corrected. No one likes to have their sin pointed out. It's just easier if the person is loving and gentle, no matter who it is you're talking about. What we have to understand, though, is this from our side. Someone corrects us, whether it's the Lord, whether it's whoever. You know, the Lord corrects us all the time, right? And it's sometimes our pride doesn't want to, um, that's not for me, that's for somebody else. And it's hard for us to hear when he's talking to us. I mean, I don't know how many times I've had people say that they think I'm talking about their situation. And I literally don't know anything about their situation. And they think I do, and I'm picking on them from up here. I'm just like, I'm sorry, I didn't know anything about that. I really didn't. Whether it's the Lord or another brother and sister or who, maybe even your enemy. But let's say someone that likes you. You have to understand if somebody's going to all that trouble, like Jesus is here, to talk to these people, he could have just walked away from it. He didn't have to come here to begin with. He's going to all that trouble and they're being nice. And you can tell they're being nice. Rather than get offended, know that they care about you and that they want to help you. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but they're wounds. It's just hard for all of us. It really is. He goes on to say, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So what would you rather have? I'd rather have a faithful friend wound me. That's going to give me eternal life than somebody telling me how whatever I am. And then they'd probably walk away and say something else anyways. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's what Jesus is doing here for all of us. Proverbs 25, 12, I like this one. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. If we'll just listen to what he's saying, it's going to help us out, right? It's going to be, end up being an earring of gold, an ornament of fine gold. So here, when these Jews are telling him, you know, they're, they're saying, we've never been in bondage to anyone. Well, normally you would look at that and think, you guys are crazy. I mean, we all know they were in bondage in Egypt. They were in bondage to Assyria. They were in bondage to Babylon, later on to Persia. And as they're talking to him right there, they're in bondage, if you want to look at it that way, to Rome. Think about it right now. Israel actually now is a free nation. They are probably more in spiritual bondage than they've ever been. <laughs> majority of the Jews over there are atheists. You know, Jesus isn't talking about politically. I don't think they were, though, either, when they said we've never been in bondage to any man. So their boast was, what did they say? We've never been in bondage. We're children of Abraham. And for the Pharisees and the Jews, that's what really counted, that they were children of Abraham. Because they knew Deuteronomy 14 said this, that they're children of the Lord, a holy people to the Lord, chosen by God, and God's special treasure. That's what Deuteronomy said about the Jews. And they looked at it like, as long as you're circumcised 
and you're part of the community, all of that applies to you. Really doesn't matter what else you're doing. So they thought, yeah, we're not in the bonds of facing hell or Gehenna, as they would have looked at it there. They thought they were free. So what are they doing? They're trusting in the family name. We're Abraham's seed, a good Christian family, from a good Christian family, good Christian people. The fact they conformed to certain outward laws, they thought that gave them God's favor. Jesus is saying, wait a minute, I've got to clear up this misunderstanding that you guys have right now. Would love have left them in that deception that they were in to perish? He's like, wait a minute, fellas, you need to understand. So he goes on right down there in verse 34. New King James says, most assuredly. The Greek is amen, amen. That's what literally is the Greek. Amen, amen. But it's amen in the Greek. And that means truly, truly. And he's saying it twice for emphasis. It is most assuredly, but it's really truly, truly. He's telling them it's a serious thing. And he says, I say to you, look what he says there in verse 34. Whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave doesn't abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. That's another promise that should have just thrilled them. The son of God is offering them to give them true freedom from sin. So, like I said, the truth he's telling them is not designed to destroy them, but to set them free. A great preacher, Puritan preacher, Richard Baxter, said this. He says, you are but dead and damned men, except you will be converted. And he said, should I tell you otherwise, I should deceive you with a lie. That's what he told the unsaved people in his congregation. You are but dead and damned men, except you will be converted. And he goes, if I tell you otherwise... I should deceive you with a lie. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so the question then becomes, what are they going to do then with this truth that Jesus is just presenting them? What are they going to do with it? Now, you're driving down a highway up in the mountains, let's say out in Colorado, and you encounter a sign. You come across the sign that says dangerous curve ahead. And immediately you're confronted with a choice, three choices actually. One is you could heed the sign, observe the warning, and slow down. Or the second thing is you could ignore the warning, just keep driving just like you were before you ever saw that sign. Or the third choice you could make is you could defy, actually defy the warning and speed up. But whatever you do, whatever response you exercise, it is not going to change the truth of the sign. Because that curve is going to be dangerous regardless of whether you slow down or not. Whether you acknowledge the sign and do what it says or not, that curve is dangerous. So these Jews that first believed in Jesus, when they were confronted with the truth of their spiritual condition, they didn't decide to heed Jesus' warning. You know, the smart thing to bend, hey, I hear what you're saying. We see who you are. Can you help me? Help me if I even if I don't understand it. Just help me to see what you're saying and experience. And instead, they chose option three and they stepped on the gas, so to speak, to defy him. And so look, look in verse 48. Look what they tell him. Then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly, you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They say it again to him in verse 52. Then the Jews say to him, now we know you have a demon. I mean, that's not exactly a compliment. They're not exactly heeding his warning. They're stepping on the gas. They're getting ready to run him over, which is what they do. If you look down in verse 59, 
Look what it says. They took up stones to throw at him. And Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. To us, that seems crazy. But we do that in so many ways, don't we? In so many ways. But they didn't want to hear it. So if you don't want to hear it, then there's a way of shutting the guy up, isn't there? That's what's going on. And the crowd reaction, this is not an uncommon thing. What we see in the Bible with the people there, people haven't changed. They're the same today. The crowds are the same today as they were back then. All we have is more technology. That's it. Just to corrupt us. That's what's going on there. But the crowd reaction in John 8 is identical to the crowd reaction in Luke 4. You remember that? He goes to his own hometown synagogue in Nazareth and it says he stood up to read and they hand him Isaiah 61 and it says this the spirit of the Lord is upon me Jesus is saying this because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and when he gets done saying this he says Standing there in front of them. This day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And you think about what was going on there. God had sent his son from heaven, anointed him, and fulfilled his promise to the nation. The news they've been wanting to hear. He's fulfilled this Isaiah 61. Jesus tells them that. And it said after he finished saying that, proclaiming liberty again, just like he has done right here in John 8 that we've read, proclaiming liberty, good news, liberty to the captives. They all acknowledge that there's something special about what is happening here. It said they look at him, their eyes were fixed on him, and they talked to one another, and they said what gracious words are coming out of his mouth. They knew it was something special. And instead of coming to him and finding out what has happened to you, you, you were the man that grew up here. And there's something about you now that is totally different. The way you're speaking, the, just everything. It, he just came out from the wilderness. And the anointing of God was on him like I couldn't imagine what it would have been like to be there and see that. But instead of that, they recognize something's different. But instead of going the step towards him, they start questioning amongst themselves, saying, well, isn't this... Joseph, the carpenter's son? And Jesus tells him, he goes, you're going to be coming to me and say, physician, heal thyself. What we've heard done over in Capernaum, which is where most of his miracles took place. So you're going to come to me and say, why can't you do that here? And he goes on and he goes, because I'll tell you why. Because you're looking at me outwardly and what you saw growing up as a boy that I was a carpenter. And he said, because no prophet is with an honor in his own hometown. And he goes on to tell them then the story about how Elijah... Many widows were in Israel, many needs, but he had to go out of the country to somebody that would receive and believe his word. And he goes on to say there was a lot of lepers in Israel during the time of Naaman, but none of them were willing to exercise faith. They all were living in unbelief to God's word. So he had to go to heal Naaman, somebody from out of town. And boy, oh boy, what's he doing there? He's not trying to provoke them to anger, even though that's what happens. He's trying to point out their sin of unbelief. And instead of coming and hearing those gracious words of liberty that he said, let's find out more about it so we can be free. He just enraged them. And just like we read here in John 8, 
They take him. They're going to throw the Son of God, the light that has come, the truth that has come to set them free, the fulfillment of God's promise. They're going to throw him over a cliff. That's crazy. But that's man in his sin. He exposed their sin and unbelief, and it's their pride again. They're offended. We all have to watch that, don't we? We think we're righteous, we think we're good, we think we're whatever, and someone says something or something happens, and man, we are offended about that. Don't want to hear it. And their pride kept them from repenting and receiving the blessing the Son of God would give them. You know, I think the hardest part, for me at least, is sharing the gospel when you have to get to the point where you tell somebody that you know they like you, and they seem like a nice person. (laughs) They generally are, and you know they like you. And you have to tell them, one way or another, that they're a sinner. They're enslaved to sin, headed for destruction, in desperate need of a Savior. However you do that, if you don't tell them that, you really haven't told them what they need to hear. Because that's what Jesus is doing here. You think about it. These crowds liked him. They want him to be king. And yet he's got to go to tell these people. Think that wasn't easy for him either. He's got the temptation is to tone it down. He goes on to say, you're children of the devil. The devil's your father. I mean, you know, that's not going to help him much, is it? Not going to get him elected mayor, that's for sure. When it dawns on somebody you're talking to, what you're saying, like I said, it doesn't matter how nice, how tactfully you say it. You got to say it. But when it dawns on them what you're saying, they can be offended. They can be. They aren't always. Sometimes it's a divine appointment. And if God's worked ahead, the Holy Spirit has their hearts softened and they're open. But there's a lot of times they're not open. Go in prison with me sometime. You'll find out you meet them both. Those that are open and a lot of them that aren't open. People don't mind being told that they have the symptoms of sin and they need a savior for that. Tell somebody, are you in poverty? Jesus will give you bread. I like that. That's good news. Are you sick? He'll be your healer. Oh, that's good news. Are you lonely? Jesus will be your friend. That's great news. I like that message. I like that Savior. But the rubber meets the road when any person is confronted with the fact that they're selfish. They don't love God and others, and they need to be set free from sin. That's what we talked last week about in John 6, when the bread stopped and the truth was presented, the crowd left. When the blessings stop and the word tests the heart and motives, that's when true and false disciples are exposed. So why were the Old Testament prophets, why were they rejected and killed? Because what they did was, their message constantly was, you read Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, you read any of that. These people were prospering and religious. You read Amos, it's not hard to see that. And they're having festivals and all that. They're going to church, even though he says, you're looking at church, you can't wait till it's over so you can get out and start buying and selling. Again, that's really what's on your mind while you're sitting there. But why were they killed and rejected, all the Old Testament prophets? Because they exposed people's motives. No heart for God. If you would, just turn to Jeremiah chapter 6. Look at two places, one in Jeremiah 6 and one in Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah 6, it says this, beginning in verse 10. Jeremiah says, to whom shall I speak and give warning? That's what we're talking about, that they may hear. He says, indeed, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot give heed. Because, it says, the word of the Lord is 
is not a blessing. It should be, but he says the word of the Lord is a reproach to them, and they have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days. And their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, what does it say? Everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I will punish them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. And if you look over in chapter 7, look what he says there. He says, Chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. He says, Amend your ways and your doings. I'll cause you to dwell in this place. You do that, everything will be fine. Don't trust in these lying words saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. He says, for if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, if you don't shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, God says, I'll bless you. I'll cause you to dwell in this place, cause you to dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. He says, but behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. He says, will you steal murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. And then look what he says in verse 28. Of chapter 7, he says, So you shall say to them, This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God. And look what he says at the end, nor receive correction. Truth thus has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. That's serious, isn't it? So I'm not saying that is a way of condemning anybody in here. I don't have anything in mind. I'm saying all of us need to understand that we need to receive correction from the Lord and not be wearied by hearing his word of correction. And it will correct us. <laughs> his word will correct us. Amen. It'll do that. So the problem is that men are slaves to sin. That's the problem held in bondage to Satan and unwilling to receive correction. That is the problem with mankind in general. But the, here's the promise, though. The promise of the Lord Jesus Christ is for all of us, if we'll humble ourselves before him, he says, you'll do that and sit under my word and receive what I'm saying. He's saying you will be set free. And he says free indeed, truly free. And he's the only one that can make us truly free, make anyone truly free. He's not talking about the false liberty or freedom of the antinomian, the person who says, well, I'm not under the law, which we're not. We understand that. We're not under the law as a system of salvation. 
but we're under grace. And the person says that, I'm under the law, I'm under grace. Therefore, I can just fulfill all my desires. I don't have anything restricting me anymore. I'm free. All this stuff I've been suppressing. But true freedom is never. This is what America teaches. America doesn't want to have anybody over them. No authority whatsoever. That's what they think freedom is. Freedom is never we can be our own lords and masters because that actually is the essence of what bondage is when we're our own lord and master because when Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, their own lord and master, that is when the chains came on them, isn't it? He says, you will be like God. Oh, we like that. Let's eat that fruit. We want to get away from him. And that's when their master they're going to have a master. It became sin, death, and the devil. And this great preacher said this. He says, the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but to find its master. The great duty of every soul is not to find its freedom, but its master. Paul deals with that very thing. If you would turn to Romans 6. We'll look at that. Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 15, he says, What then, Paul says, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? He's like, certainly not. God forbid. Verse 16, he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Whether it's sin, you only have two choices, whether of sin leading to what? To death. Or the other master is of obedience to the Lord, leading to righteousness. He says, but God be thanked, though you were, that's all of us, you were the slaves of sin. He says, yet you obeyed how? Unwillingly? What does he say? You obeyed from the heart. That's what the new birth should do to us. It should no longer be an unwilling obedience. I just have to do these things or I'll perish. The new birth should make a willingness where you delight in the law of the Lord. But he says, you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine or teaching to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, there's that freedom Jesus is talking about. You're not free to do whatever you want. You become a slave of what? Righteousness. He says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... He says, so now, now you're a Christian. Present your members as slaves of righteousness, which will lead to what? Holiness. He says, verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things that you did of which you, were, you should be now ashamed? But now, he says, having been set free from sin, which is what Jesus is talking about, you've become slaves of God. And you have your fruit to, there's, it is again, fruit to holiness. And the end of that, though, is what? Everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So A.W. Pink said this, he says, true liberty is not the power to live as we please, but to live as we ought. That's what God's done for us. Now we can live as we ought, not like we want to. And too many times, and that seems to be the message now, live as you please because God's grace covers all. Well, that's not what his grace is designed to do. We've talked about that in Titus 2. So like I said, it sounds paradoxical to be a slave of God is true freedom. We're designed to be his slaves and to worship him. To illustrate that, many people think freedom is a license to do whatever a person wants. 
like the man said, true freedom is the ability to do what is right. So it takes obedience in order to have true freedom. Give us this example. I can sit at a piano and be at liberty to play any keys that I want to. I've heard kids do that. But they really don't have any freedom because they can't play anything but noise when they do that. They don't have the freedom. A little child that's never taken a piano lesson is going to bang away at your piano. They don't have the freedom to play Bach or even something as simple as chopsticks. And why is that? Because it takes years of practice and obedience to lesson plans to be truly free on the piano. And then, and only then, in obedience, do you have the freedom to play any piece of music. And it's the same with living a holy life. For us to live a holy life and to be happy and to enjoy what we're doing, we have to have the power and ability to be obedient, don't we? And that's what Jesus says. He says, the Son will make you free. He's saying, I will give you that power and ability and desire. Now, how does he do that? Oh, we're going to look at one thing today and we'll look at the rest next week. But the first thing, so what is this freedom from sin on a positive note? He sets us free from the condemnation of past, present, and future sin. John 5, 24, this is a great verse to know. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And he says, he shall not come into condemnation, but has passed from death into life. Some people are still shackled by, if you could be somebody in here today, you're shackled by the sins you committed last week. Or you could be a young person that's not converted, and you think the things you've done, the way you live, you, God could never forgive you. You just think, man, I've got to be judged, and that seems fair. Listen, Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, a person will say, but can I be freed from the punishment of sin? God is just. He must punish sin. He's saying, the person saying, is it not possible that the judge of all the earth should allow such a rebel as I am to escape? Shall I go scot-free? Shall I have the same reward with the perfectly righteous after years of unbelief, am I still to be treated as though I had always been a willing and loving child? This is not just. I must be punished. And he went on to say, sinner, and this would be any of us, there is no need that you should be cast into hell. No, you shall not be if your trust is placed in the blood shed on Calvary. And that's for all of us, isn't it? I thought that this old man, that he was wearing me out after prison, and he's Mr. Wisdom. He's telling me how wise he is, how great a speaker he is. He wants to know what I have to do to get him out of prison for the warden to let him come and speak to you all. Well, he's telling me, he's like, you know, that whole thing of someone dying in your place, he goes, we've got to pay for our own sins. I'm like, wait a minute. I'll let him just ramble on. I said, wait a minute, I'm going to stop you right there. I said, you better hope you don't have to pay for your own sins, and you better hope that you get your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he did is counted to your account. But that's what it is. No condemnation. We deserve condemnation. We all know that. But it's because he took it all. He took all of our condemnation on us. So there's no fear anymore. And a condemned prisoner, you talk about somebody, well, he's a condemned prisoner. You get this picture I always do of somebody sitting in shackles in a cell. Sentence has been passed. And he has been consigned to destruction. He's just waiting for it to happen. Just waiting his execution. That was the woman 
who was caught in adultery in this chapter. Those Pharisees more or less have her chained and handcuffed, don't they? Kind of throw her in front of her like that. Sentence had been passed on her. They said, now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Moses had passed sentence on her, God's law. Passed on her and there she is in chains, thrown down in humiliation in front of Jesus. And she couldn't plead justice, no plea to justice. Jesus had to speak a word of mercy. He gets rid of those guys saying, wait a minute, you're trying to condemn her and you don't even see you're in the same condemnation she is. Your heart's wicked as hers is. But when they finally left, he looked at her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And he said to her, neither do I condemn you. We're saying Christianity, how he frees us from sin is he frees us from the condemnation of our sins. Go and sin no more. And right then when she said that, her chains fell off and she walked away free, free indeed, didn't she? Truly free, as you could say, because the son had sent her free. We read this at the beginning. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And like I said, the fact is, all men born into this world are under just condemnation of God, and their conscience tells them that. And so what is the result of that? It was for me. Until I got saved, I was very much afraid of dying. I heard enough of Billy Graham that I knew if I died, I was going straight to hell. And I just hoped every day wasn't that day, but I wasn't ready to come to Jesus yet. That's why men fear death. And that's what the Bible says is the bondage that all men are over their entire lives that don't know the Lord. Hebrews 2.14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Saying you're slaves of sin. He says, but if you stay in my word, you'll know the truth and the truth will release you from your bondage of that fear of death. And I've had several people tell me, I'm afraid to die. I could have died. And that shouldn't be the case for a Christian, should it? We should have that assurance of that. Because it's not so much the physical act of dying. I don't really like the idea of suffering a long time before I died. Or being, I've had visions of being tortured and then killed. I don't like that. But that's not what has men in fear of bondage. It's the fact that one day they're going to close their eyes and they know they're going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God. And their conscience is telling them, you are in big trouble. That guilt that's there. But for the true Christian, God's judgment on sin took place 2,000 years ago. And that's where these words in Romans 8 that Paul wrote, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in union with Christ. If you're not walking close with the Lord or you're backslidden, it may be you're saved, but you're not going to have that assurance of no condemnation because your conscience is going to be accusing you. And so the way that light grows brighter and that fear is dispelled is by maintaining a close walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you'll have that witness of the Spirit that Paul talks about here in Romans 8. But he went on to write, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, 
but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to do that? He said, it's God who justifies us. And then he says, who is it that condemns? Is it your conscience? Is it the devil? Is it someone else? He said, it's Christ who died. And furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And he goes on to say, who shall separate us then from this love of Christ? He did all that. Don't let yourself live in condemnation. You've got to believe what he says. Growing in the knowledge of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has for us, which, like I said, that comes through reading his word, communing with him in his word and prayer that will deliver us from this fear of death. Get back to John eight. Look what he says. What he says in verse 51. Jesus just told him he had a demon. Abraham's dead. The prophets and look, Jesus says. Jesus says there, he says, most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, my word, he shall never see death. And so at all circles back to verse 31, living in the word will do what it'll keep us living at the feet of Jesus and we'll know him and we'll know his love. And that truth will set us free from the fear of judgment and condemnation. That's just one thing. And if you would, we'll finish by looking at this. This would be the last thing we'll do. Look back at 1 John chapter 4. And this is the first thing, but it is no small thing. So we're saying knowing the love of God and the fact that there is no condemnation because of what he's done is essential. So look what it says, 1 John 4, beginning in verse 17. He says this, he says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. That's the thing everyone fears. But we can have boldness because as he is, so are we in this world. And he says, there is no fear in love. But perfect love or mature love will cast out that fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. And we love him because he first loved us. That's the torment that's tormenting everybody on this earth. That's what we read in Hebrews 2, or I've quoted it to you. Men all their lifetime have been subject to bondage and torment about the day of judgment because of their conscience. They may dull it, they may sear it, but one day it's going to be awakened one day, and it happens a lot of times when they're on their deathbeds and they realize the terror of what's coming. But he's saying, no, we can know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And he's come to you and we're following him. You're abiding in his word. You're spending time with him in prayer and you have that fellowship with him. That assurance will just grow brighter and brighter and brighter. And that day of judgment is not going to be something that's tormenting you that you're so afraid of. And dying is not something you dread. You'll be like Paul. To depart, I'll be with him. This one I've been communing and fellowshipping with and walking with all these years. And that's what he's saying. The son will set you truly free because that is true freedom isn't it oh man for me it was before i got saved i see policemen and it was instant panic afterwards i could smile and wave and something i can do for you officer because there's not that condemnation hanging over your head amen because of what god has done no small release no small thing we'll pick it up there next time let's pray and father we thank you lord for 
your word once again, Lord, we learn many things from the conversation Jesus has with others. And we thank you, Lord, for showing us that. We thank you for the freedom that you've given us, Lord. No condemnation because you received all of our condemnation for us, Lord. And I just ask you to draw us all close to you and your word and prayer that we can have that assurance that we're not afraid of that day of judgment. We can have boldness. I thank you that you'll do that for us, Lord. And I also ask you'll give us all hearts that are humble before you and willing to receive correction out of your word and willing to abide under your word, Lord, even when it doesn't seem to pay. Thank you that you'll do that for us and you'll cause us to be faithful to you. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.